0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And my name is Julie Soulpatch Douglas.
1: Soulpatch Douglas? Yeah, I'm yeah. wearing my
0: soul patch today.
1: Oh, yeah, right there on the, the chin? Uh-huh. Yeah? I've, I've often wondered about the the naming of the soul patch. Is it, is it tied into anything? Like, there are no chakras that line up with the chin, uh... Like, why is that like an energy point where uh, the growth of a little facial hair would somehow protect the soul, patch the soul, keep the soul in the body?
0: Yeah, what does it mean when you shave it off too? Are you soulless?
1: Hmm. We're already getting into that, that, uh, that, that, that ever-present issue of, uh, of the soul, the human soul. And we've, we've talked about this before, um in the past, uh, this, this idea of uh, of some immortal slice of ourselves dates back to, to ancient times. Ancient religions used of use of an astral body, this idea that you have your physical body, but then there's also some there's an imma, Im, immaterial, immortal you as well. And then you can take that all the way up into the 20th century. Um, uh, where most uh, philosophers are are toying with this idea of, of persons as souls. And, and human beings are made up of two substances, soul and body, soma and sark.
0: Yeah, I wanted to point out that the ancient Hebrew word for soul is nepesh, meaning life, or mm-hmm. vital breath. The Greek word for soul is psyche, or mind, which I think gives another flavor of this idea of soul. And the Roman Latin word for soul is anima, or spirit, or breath. Mm-hmm. So, in all of these variations uh, on the word "soul," you see how it is multi-layered, and again, this sort of ephemeral quality to it—that sort of like f- fog that you can't trap into a suitcase—feeling.
1: Right. Yeah, and a lot. We're not going to get too deep into this, but I mean, obviously, you know, as, it, as we're, we're dealing with our ephemeral lives and the ephemeral lives of everyone else around us, like it's—it's—it's it's, it's very tempting to. To fall into that line of thinking and to, or even, you know, to, to, to embrace that line of thinking where when you look at the dead body of a loved one and there's something like the spark is gone, the life is gone out of them to think about that spark being somewhere else.
0: Yeah. I was thinking about that with the law of contagion. We've talked about that before. It's this mm-hmm. magical thinking that things that have once been in contact with each other will continue to act on each other at a distance, uh, even when physical contact has been severed and, in this sense, the soul is is part of that contagion. This idea that the persistence of the individual soul uh, continues after life ends.
1: Yeah. So again, you come down to you have the physical world and you have this world of the spirit, this world of the unseen, right? Uh, and and I'm not and I'm I'm not like a hardcore skeptic who's going to say, all right, the... You know, only the scientific side of things. Don't you know? Don't even entertain the idea of the unseen. I mean, I, I think the unseen has it has a place in my life. I, I I recognize that it has an important place in other people's lives. The inevitable conflict, though, is when you have scientific understanding of the world butting heads with ideas about the unseen and 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 magical thinking and uh, and at times elaborate uh, metaphysical ideas about what is happening to some immortal uh, part of ourselves.
0: The, The problem here is that you cannot prove the soul. You cannot disprove it. And yet it's one of the maybe the largest looming questions that we have as humans, because it involves the sort of beginning and ends of things that we've talked about before. We've even tied this back to the Big Bang we know the big bang began that's when time began mm-hmm. what was before it <laughs> you know, what yeah. is after it so it all sort of circles back into this idea of this culmination of atoms that's organized in our individual bodies what is there some sort of fate for that that we don't understand or we don't know or, or they're not
1: yeah i, th- I think uh, skeptic michael Shermer. uh puts it perfectly uh, over on skeptics.com, excellent website. Uh he says, I define the soul as the unique pattern of information that represents the essence of a person. By this definition, unless there is some medium to retain the pattern of our personal information after we die, our soul dies with us. Our bodies are made of proteins, coded by our DNA, so that the disintegration of, of DNA, uh, our protein patterns are lost forever. Our memories and personality are stored in the pattern of neurons firing in our brain, so when those neurons die, it spells the death of our memories personality similar to the ravages of stroke and alzheimer's disease only final and this underlying the fact that it's really difficult to try and use science to create a working model of, of, of what a soul would even be
0: yeah the the soul problem is very similar to the immortality problem mm-hmm. and the consciousness problem and i would even say that um that in some ways consciousness as we've talked about it and we do talk about it is kind of a stand-in for the soul mm-hmm. and that maybe in these more modern times we talk less about the soul and more about consciousness because we have this idea of consciousness as about being this awareness and it existing inside of time and the big question is can it exist outside of time and if you say consciousness arises from the electrochemical process of the brain and nothing more then you could take the hard line and say that when the lights go out in the brain, so too does consciousness. So too does this sense of soul.
1: Hmm. Yeah, indeed, uh, harkens back to our episode on reincarnation, uh, where, uh, you had scientific explorations of reincarnation and they referred to it as, uh, survival of, of, of consciousness.
0: Now, that doesn't mean that, that some intrepid, uh, explorers out there in the world couldn't try to quantify the soul, uh, qualify it even. And there is one person in particular named Duncan McDougall who was a respected turn-of-the-century surgeon in Massachusetts. And he was occupied with a very particular question, which maybe even started out as a thought experiment, but then became an actual experiment that he tried to do. And according to Mary Roach in her book Spook, McDougall wrote, quote, It is unthinkable that personality and consciousness can be attributes of that which does not occupy space. And if they occupy space, he reasoned, they must have weight. He says, quote, The the question arose in my mind, why not weigh a man at the very moment of death? This, he thought, would give you the exact weight of the soul. And not just the weight of the soul of like, hey, I wonder how much the soul weighs, but more like... The soul exists.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's going into it with the preconceived notion. There's a soul. Uh, the, The open question is, how much does it weigh?
0: Now, this led to McDougall hanging around a consumptive's home around 1901, chatting up the gravely ill tuberculosis patients. And according to McDougall's writings in the Journal of the American Society for Physical Research, obtaining consent from a few of them to weigh their bodies at the moment of their death. And side note... Uh, He chose this particular illness, advanced stage of tuberculosis, because, quote, a consumptive dying after a long illness, wasting his energies, dies with scarcely a movement to disturb the beam. He means (laughs) that the beam that is uh, on the scale. Their bodies are also very light, and we can be forewarned for hours that a consumptive is dying.
1: Because you need that window in which to act. And he's not... A complete crazy person, so he's not going to go around killing people.
0: No, uh, no. I actually I thought this was a very logical way to hone in on the the person who's dying. That you would the ideal dying person, right, mm-hmm. is going to be quiet about it and easily transported.
1: Indeed. So he he transports them in. He puts him on the bed on the scale, and uh, in on April tenth, nineteen o one, he. You could say treats his first patient uh, assisted by two uh, physicians. They watch a man die upon a cot placed upon a customized industrial scale scale for weighing silk.
0: Yes. And for three and a half hours, they watch his every single movement, his chest going up and down to try to determine the exact moment that he dies so that they can hopefully record a a uh, lowering of his weight, which would um. Uh, Give them some sort of clue that the soul had escaped the body. And lo and behold, he dies, and the scale lowers to three quarters of an ounce or about 21 grams,
1: 2021. 20, Indeed. Uh, and so that's where you, if you've ever heard the, uh, you know, 21 grams, it was, uh, uh, the name of a film yes. several years ago. And, and, and in naming the film that they probably, uh, help substantiate this, uh, this idea that the soul, soul weighs 21 grams.
0: Yeah. And in fact, uh, right before he published his results in American medicine, he had a paper that he was, um publishing the new york times got wind of this Mm -hmm. and they pretty much just reported it as fact like hey by (laughs) the way the soul when it departs 21 grams and that kind of cemented this idea in popular culture that this was indeed a thing
1: yeah i mean despite the fact as we'll get into that, that it's not like everyone was like oh that sounds great yeah i buy that no there were plenty of scientific uh minds out there uh criticized this uh after it came out but um McDougall uh repeated this experiment five times. Um uh, his uh, his findings appeared in American Medicine 1907 and uh that's when the well-deserved criticisms began to roll in regarding these experiments and their findings. Findings that were they were crude, uh varying and unreplicated in subsequent experiments. And naturally, that's a major red flag about any experiment out there. If 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 no one else can follow your steps and come to the same result,
0: now Mary Roach in her book Spook says there are two ways of looking at McDougall's findings. One is that he was pretty much like a a, a nutter. That's, that's actually the <laughs> word she uses for him. Um, and the other is that his experiment protocols were weak sauce, essentially lacking rigor and uniformity. And we'll talk more about that. So it, the nutter question is interesting. Why why might he have been a nutter? Well, He wrote his thesis on the law of similars, this idea that like cures like. And this is a homeopathic approach to medicine. Now, back in his day, homeopathy was not something that was fringe. Um, McDougall was just kind of following the lead at the time. So it may not be that he was so much a nutter, but maybe just trying to rack up some accolades And some status
1: where he could. Now, as pointed out by uh, McDougal's contemporary critics, um, and and, and this may have come to uh, the mind of of people listening as well, um, there are other things that leave the body over the course of death. such as a feces and urine. And uh, and so this was a one instant criti- criticism where people said, well, the body died, uh, urine and feces came out, maybe that had something to do with the loss. Uh, McDougall was quick to insist that the bed on the scales would have caught all of this, so it wouldn't be an issue. But still, there's something called insensible loss. This is body weight uh, that is continually lost through evaporating perspiration, uh, through water vapor in your breath, uh, just throughout A normal day. And daily loss really can't be measured, but we're probably talking like uh, between 40 and 600 um, uh, milliliters in an adult under normal circumstances. And and certainly, death is not a normal circumstance.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. So you have that criticism uh, going on about what the loss actually consists of. And then you have the criticism, again, of the scientific rigors or the lack of them. So let's consider that first um, six dying patients is not a large enough sample size, just no. at yeah. the outset. Like, this is not, a, you know, something to draw a bunch of conclusions upon. Second, the time of death is a really tricky thing, even now. Mm-hmm. It's a tricky thing. So when you look at McDougall's work, or you're, you have to wonder, what he, did he mean by... By the time of death, are we talking about cellular death, brain death, physical death, heart death, legal death, and the fact that at that time they didn't really have all of the technology available to even try to determine any of those Third, his data in his sample size was all over the place. Uh, two of the results had to be excluded because of technical difficulties. For instance, when it came to patient number four, McDougal wrote, quote, our scales were not finely adjusted, and there was a good deal of interference by people opposed to our work. And he doesn't say, like, what What do you mean? Wh- what people? <laughs> what kind of interference?
1: I mean, I can't help but picture people with pitchforks, like out of Frankenstein. Yeah. The castle. Yeah, right.
0: right? Um, and then one patient's death did show a drop in weight of about three-eighths of an ounce, but this later reversed itself. Two of the other patients registered an immediate loss of weight at the moment of death, but then their weight dropped again a few minutes later. So that that led uh, some people to say, well, did that person die twice? <laughs> um, and only one of six patients showed a sudden and non-reversible loss of weight of 3 fourths of an ounce, of course, are 21 grams. So that's one. Yeah. And as you had said, in follow-up studies, this could not be replicated.
1: Right. Now, file this under the uh, you know the realization that McDougall, again, is, is probably not a complete crazy person. Like, he, he knew that he lacked concrete findings. He didn't say, case closed, here's the soul. Uh, he wanted to do more. Uh, including placing an electric chair on the scale so as to measure the soul loss of an executed prisoner, but uh, there was already objection from from local uh, officials. Uh, so definitely there was opposition to the the prospect of executing people uh, in his lab. So he didn't get to experiment on people anymore after these initial uh, experiments. Now, he did turn to dogs. Uh, He experimented on 15, which he killed himself, uh, and he saw no weight change. Uh, But he had an explanation for that. Maybe dogs just don't have souls, (laughs) which um, kind of underlines, again, the problem of taking the seen world of science and using it to investigate the unseen that uh, where so much of it is just based on on uh, you know, these these different metaphysical ideas of uh, and, and these different constructs of how it's supposed to work. Um, does a dog have a soul? You know.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, you have to say it's is is his. Uh, this is not for a lack of trying. I mean, he yeah. once he cannot have access to humans. He's going to dogs. He's also inviting other people to try to replicate his results, to try to do these experiments. But of course. And the medical community isn't exactly embracing this.
1: Luckily, uh, 10 years later, Los Angeles Polytechnic High School physics teacher H. Lav Twining self-published a book called The Physical Theory of the Soul, in which he decided to jump into this and, you know, follow in the footsteps, the scientific footsteps of McDougal. He didn't work on any people, but he did kill 30 mice. (laughs) which he was convinced must surely have souls, which is, uh, again, it's an interesting, uh, colorful uh, deviation from from uh, McDougall himself. He said, oh, the, the, the dogs probably don't have souls. That's why they didn't register. But he's going into this saying, yes, mice have souls, and therefore they're a perfect thing to experiment on. In his soul-weighing experiments, using varying uh, and at times creative ec- uh, methods of execution, resulted mostly with no loss, uh, no possible weight loss that you could attribute to a soul. The only one, save in the case of uh, cyanide-poisoned mice, uh, which he uh, c- conducted, may have lost weight via frantic uh, death throw, uh perspiration. Uh, so he drowned some mice after that in a sealed container and recorded no weight change. So this is probably our, our best example of someone following up his work, albeit mm-hmm. with mice, and, uh, and recording his results.
0: Yeah, that is actually pretty rigorous testing and experimenting in comparison to the next person who takes on McDougall's legacy. And his name is Gilbert Carpenter. And in 1998, he publishes the online book, Physically Wing the Soul. Now, he does not conduct any experiments himself, but he does a lot of tinkering with numbers. <laughs> and he thinks about this deeply. And his idea... Was that the souls of the dogs and mice were so light that they just wouldn't register on the scale? That's why this this is failing. And according to Mary Roach and Spook, uh, quote: Using McDougall's findings that the soul weighs about twenty grams, Carpenter calculated the ratio of soul weight to body weight at birth, one to forty. He then applied this to typical puppy birth weight and from there deduced that the average dog soul weighs one gram, which it turns out is less than the sensitivity of the scale McDougall uh-huh. used to weigh the dead dogs. I, that's the rub, right? Because McDougall's scale was according to McDougall accurate to one sixteenth of an ounce or 1.8 grams. Therefore dog soul too light. Now, that seems like a convenient loophole.
1: Yeah, it does.
0: Uh, I wanted to mention that other features of a carpenter's book is that he calculates the volume of the human soul. In this volume, he uses a, as a metric, dubbing it the Mac okay. after McDougall. Mm-hmm. He puts forth the idea that one way to weigh the soul would be to weigh a pregnant woman at the moment that the Mac Entered the fetus around 43 days <laughs> when the brain waves are first detected, he says. Um, and if you have a haint, he even goes into this. This is so great. Mary Rach goes into this in, in her book, spook. Um, that he suggests that the best way to get rid of a ghost is to invite a pregnant woman over <laughs> around that 42, 43 day period and then use her as a portal to store the ghost away.
1: Oh, well, that, that makes, that makes perfect sense.
0: It gets worse from there. There's, there's yeah. talk about leprechauns
1: too. Yeah, something about the, like the human soul would take up the space of a leprechaun. Cause you want to start throwing yeah. leprechaun into your study just to make yourself know, make it seem like you know what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, and then there's some calculations about Jesus' soul, which was, I don't know, 524 ounces. Uh, and it, it, what I like about it is that he did do some reverse engineering with mathematics to try to get at the heart of this. But unfortunately, this is where McDougall's legacy
1: leaves off. Yes, indeed it does. Um, but you know, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to look at uh, some uh, some more modern uh, cosmic uh, uh, and, and physics based ideas about what what this where this soul might be, and, and indeed how you might try and measure it in some way.
0: All right, we're back, and I bet you. Ya- just bet you that quantum physics is going to get wrapped up in all this little wing,
1: oh yeah, I mean it, quantum physics is kind of a it 's a handy place at times to sort of store these unknowns right because it 's kind of it 's kind of a wild frontier in many respects um, in mary roach 's book spook, she does talk to an individual by the name of gary Nahum. Um he 's a Duke University Medical School professor. Uh, and he has done a, a fair amount of thinking on this. Now he's 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 done a bit of writing on um, oh on on on, the, on predicting the future uh, via science uh, and to, to what extent we can do it. And he's also done a lot of of of, of thinking and writing on consciousness. So he proposes that one interesting uh, way to potentially. Uh, measure or at least hunt for the weight of the soul, if you will, is to use a hermetically sealed box atop hypersensitive scales. All right. So far that, that, that pretty much lines up with some earlier notions we were discussing, but then he adds this. You also surround, uh, the box and the scales with various radiant energy detectors, Why? Well, because information, right? Uh, Because in Schirmer's words that we mentioned earlier, we're talking about this unique pattern of information that represents the essence of a person. And that information is energy. There's always a weight loss with energy loss. And if the energy changes, then the mass must change in some uh, minute, uh, barely discernible way. So... Uh, Naim's idea here is that if more mass dissipates than can be accounted for due to energy change, then perhaps, perhaps that extra energy would be consciousness leaving the body. And since energy can either be created or destroyed, it has to go somewhere, right? Um, now that somewhere uh, is is kind of trippy uh, because uh, uh, in in uh, according to some of Nahum's, uh Uh, theories and and ideas here, he postulates that based on the increase of black hole entropy in the region of event horizons, that similarly the negative entropy or post-death ordered transformed consciousness may go through a type of extra-dimensional parallel universe hyperspace in the regions of the Planck length where the energy of the departed consciousness goes into small types of singularities embedded within our own four-dimensional space-time world. In 2005, he attempted hmm. to raise some money for experimentation, but nothing came to fruition. Uh, but again, he's, he's written about this, and, uh, it's, at the very least, it's some, some very interesting, uh, thought experimentation in terms of, again, taking on that difficult task mm-hmm. of trying to make, create a working model of how a soul and survival of the soul might work in our scientific world.
0: But how do you suss out the electrochemical, um, changes in the brain that are part of death and part of consciousness and then just part of the rest of your body, uh, you know, falling apart atomically. I mean, well, you, not falling apart, but <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like this is where it gets, ah!
1: Yeah. At this point, you just, you just want to call the Ghostbusters, um, proton packs, you know?
0: So this makes me think about Richard Feynman, who gave this talk about scientific rigor and about really trying to make sure that your processes were correct. And he talks about uh, this experiment with rats in 1937, and it says it's a little-known experiment, but this guy, Paul Thomas Young, had this long corridor with um, doors on one side that the rats came in, and doors... Um, on the other side of those doors, there was food. And he wanted to see if he could train the rats to go in at the third down, third door down from wherever they had started from. And this corridor, all of this was uniformly constructed, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that the rats would keep going to the door where the food was previously. And this was driving him nuts. And he tried to figure out... Different things he could do. He painted the doors really carefully, arranging the textures on the faces of, of the doors exactly the same. But still, the rats would go to the previous door where the food had been. And then he thought maybe the rats were smelling the food. So he changed the, the smell of the, the, the food with chemicals. And then the rats could still tell. And eventually he figured out that the rats could discern the previous door by the way the floor sounded when they ran over it. And so I bring this up because the the story about this is that you have to discover all the things about something before you can discover what it is you're specifically going in to try to discover about the rats, right? right? Like you have to discover everything you can about this process before you can actually get the results you want. And this is a kind of scientific rigor that, you know, hopefully everybody is bringing to the table when they're conducting experiments. And it makes it, this is something concrete, rats, Mm -hmm. a maze. And now you're talking about something extremely abstract with souls and then trying to apply science to that. And then, again, this is where it all falls apart. And Adam Frank who is a theoretical computational astrophysicist, he says, quote, For myself, I remain fully and firmly agnostic on the question of an afterlife in a soul. If ever there was a place where firm convictions seemed misplaced, this is it. There simply is no controlled, experimental, verifiable information to support either you rot versus you go on positions.
1: You know, I, I think I've made this analogy before, but when I when it comes to um uh, you know science and uh religion or faith or metaphysics bumping heads i often think of it in terms of someone who has a pet uh, python and a pet rat like they they are both fine pets to have mm-hmm. it's it's you know and you can you can gain a lot from that relationship with that uh, that that rat a lot from that relationship with that uh that snake but it would be foolhardy to keep them in the same case. Like it's, they cannot live in the same enclosure without uh, the inevitable occurring. And uh, and I often feel like that with uh, w- with these matters. Like I I can't have my pet rat and I have my pet snake, but I-, I know that there are compatibility issues between the two.
0: You know, we I remember this keynote speech we gave, and uh, it was in Minneapolis, and uh, we were doing it at a conference, and we were talking about how science is not apart from us. And one of the points we were making is that science is storytelling. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, you break it down to just like, here it is, trying to be as pragmatic and objective and empirical as possible about your reality. And yet on the other side of all of those particulars is a story that comes out of it. And so I think that we are completely compelled. We can't help ourselves to try to put a story even in scientific terms to the, to things that maybe we don't really have the understanding or the, the correct language to depict. Right. And that's where trying to wo- uh, weigh a soul comes in and becomes like this problematic, really messy problem that we get into.
1: Indeed. All right. So there you have it. The weight of the soul, uh, what happens when uh, science and religion come together and we try to uh, prove the unseen world using the uh, tools of the seen. If you would like to uh, hear more from us, uh, check out all the podcast episodes at StuffToBlowYourMind.com along with uh, blog posts, videos, links out to our social media accounts, you name it.
0: And if you want to weigh in on the soul matters, well, you can do so by sending us an email to BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com.